Section 24 of Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in January 2021. Library of the World's Best Literature, Ancient and Modern, Volume 11. Section 24. Selected excerpts by Edward Dowes Decker, 1820-1887. Ten years after Uncle Tom's Cabin, there appeared in Amsterdam a book that caused as great a sensation among the Dutch coffee traders on the Amstel as had Harriet Beecher Stowe's wonderful story among the slaveholders at the South. This book was Max Hafelaar, and its author, veiled under the suggestive pen-name of Multa Tuli, who have suffered much, at once became famous. It frankly admitted that it was a novel with a purpose, and this purpose was to bring home to his countrymen the untold sufferings and oppression to which the natives of the Dutch East Indies were subjected, in order that the largest possible profit might flow into the coffers of the people of Holland. Multatuli, under the disguise of fiction, professed to give facts he had himself collected on the spot. Edward Dowes Decker, born in 1820 in Amsterdam, went as a youth of seventeen to the Dutch colonies. There, for nearly twenty years, he was in the employ of the government, obtaining at last the post of assistant resident of Lebak, a province of Java. In this responsible position he used his influence to stem the abuses and extortions practiced by the native chiefs against the defenseless populace. But his humanitarianism clashed with the interests of his government, and sacrificing a brilliant career to a principle, he sent in his resignation and returned to Holland in 1856, a poor man. He began to put his experiences on paper, and in 1860 published the book that made him famous. Max Havela is a bitter arraignment of the Dutch colonial system and gives a more excruciating picture of the slavery of the natives of fair Insuland than ever existed in the South. For nearly 300 years, Dutch burghers on the Scheldt, the Maas and the Amstel have waxed fat on the labours of the Malays of the Far East. In these islands of the East Indian archipelago, the relations between the Europeans and the Dutch are peculiar, based on the policy of the government of getting the largest possible revenues out of these fertile possessions. Practically, the native is a Dutch subject, and the product of his labor goes directly to Holland. Nominally, he is still ruled by his tribal chief, to whom he is blindly and superstitiously devoted. Playing on this feudal attachment, the Dutch, while theoretically pledging themselves to protect the defenseless populace against rapacity, have yet so arranged the administration that the chiefs have unlimited opportunities of extortion. They are paid premiums on whatever their provinces furnish for the foreign market, and as they have practically full control over the persons and property of their subjects, they force these poor wretches to contribute whatever they may demand in unpaid labor and provisions, besides the land taxes. 
and there is yet another hardship rice is the staple product of java but as that does not pay so well as coffee sugar indigo or spices the javanese is driven away from the rice fields he loves and famine is often the result famine in java the rich and fertile famine yes reader a few years ago whole districts were depopulated by famine mothers offered to sell their children for food mothers ate their own children but then the mother country interfered in the halls of the dutch parliament complaints were made and the then reigning governor had to give orders that the extension of the so-called european market should no longer be pushed to the extremity of famine the book is an eloquent plea for more humane treatment of these wretches in glowing colours decker paints the condition of java its scenery its inhabitants the extortions of the native regents and the rapacity of the european traders the truth of these accusations has never been disputed indeed it has been said that he kept on this side of exaggeration at the international congress for the promotion of social science at amsterdam in eighteen sixty three he challenged his critics to prove him false but no one came forward one high government official indeed said that he could refute max havela but that it was not in his interest to do so despite the sensation the book made affairs in the east remained pretty much the same as before decker tried in vain to get some influence in holland but he had killed himself politically by avowing that max havela was not written in the interests of either party but was the utterance of a champion of humanity thoroughly disappointed in his countrymen he exiled himself and went to live in germany in eighteen sixty six but he did not therefore lay down a pen that had become in his hands a powerful weapon he published a number of books on political social and philosophic subjects in the form of stories dramas aphorisms or polemics noteworthy among these are his fine parables the novel la sainte vierge the holy virgin the drama in blank Faustin's hall school for princes containing many fine thoughts and still one of the most popular plays of the day and the incomplete geschiedenis van wontertje pieterse story of wontertje pieterse published in eighteen eighty eight by his widow who also brought out his letters and in eighteen ninety two a complete edition of his works the writings of decker are marked by a fiery yet careful style oriental richness of imagery and originality and independence of thought he wrote as social reformer and attacked with unrivalled power of sarcasm all manner of cant sham and red tape his works betrayed the disappointment of a defeated idealist he was a man of marked individuality and strongly attracted or repelled others for the last few years of his life he ceased to write and lived in retirement in niederingelheim on the rhine where he died february nineteenth eighteen eighty seven multatuli's last words to the reader from max havela yes i multatuli who have suffered much 
I take the pen. I do not make any excuses for the form of my book. That form was thought proper to obtain my object. I will be read. Yes, I will be read. I will be read by statesmen who are obliged to pay attention to the signs of the times, by men of letters, who must also look into the book of which so many bad things are said, by merchants who have an interest in the coffee auctions, by ladies' maids who read me for a few farthings, by governors-general in retirement, by ministers who have something to do, by the lackeys of these excellencies, by mutes who, more majorum, will say that I attack God Almighty, when I attack only the God which they made according to their own image, by the members of the representative chambers who must know what happens in the extensive possessions over the sea which belong to Holland. I, I shall be read. When I obtain this I shall be content, for I did not intend to write well. I wished to write so as to be heard, and as one who cries, Stop thief, does not care about the style of his impromptu address to the public, I too am indifferent to criticism of the manner in which I cried my Stop thief. The book is a medley, there is no order, nothing but a desire to make a sensation. The style is bad, the author is inexperienced, no talent, no method. Good, good, all very well, but the Javanese are ill-treated. For the merit of my book is this, that refutation of its main features is impossible. And the greater the disapprobation of my book, the better I shall be pleased, for the chance of being heard will be so much the greater, and that is what I desire. But you whom I dare to interrupt in your business or in your retirement, ye ministers and governors-general, do not calculate too much upon the inexperience of my pen. I could exercise it, and perhaps by dint of some exertion, attain to that skill which would make the truth heard by the people. Then I should ask of that people a place in the representative chambers, were it only to protest against the certificates which are given vice versa by Indian functionaries to protest against the endless expeditions sent and heroic deeds performed against poor miserable creatures whose ill-treatment has driven them to revolt to protest against the cowardice of general orders that brand the honour of the nation by invoking public charity on behalf of the victims of inveterate piracy it is true those rebels were reduced by starvation to skeletons while those pirates could defend themselves. And if that place were refused me, if I was still disbelieved, then I should translate my book into the few languages that I know, and the many that I yet can learn, to put that question to Europe, which I have in vain put to Holland. And in every capital such a refrain as this would be heard, there is a band of robbers between Germany and the Schelt. And if this were of no avail, then I should translate my book into Malay, Javanese, Sudanese, Alfour, Bugi, and Bata, and I should sharpen Klewangs, the scimitars, and the sabres, by rousing with warlike songs the minds of those martyrs whom I have promised to help, 
I, Multa Tuli, would do this. Yes, delivery and help, lawfully if possible, lawfully with violence if need be. And that would be very pernicious to the coffee auctions of the Dutch trading company. For I am no fly-rescuing poet, no rapt dreamer like the downtrodden Hafela, who did his duty with the courage of a lion and endured starvation with the patience of a marmot in winter. This book is an introduction. I shall increase in strength and sharpness of weapons according as it may be necessary. Heaven grant that it may not be necessary. No, it will not be necessary, for it is to thee I dedicate my book, William the Third, King, Grand Duke, Prince, more than Prince, Grand Duke and King, Emperor of the magnificent Empire of Insulind, which winds about the equator like a garland of emeralds. I ask thee if it be thine imperial will that the half alas should be bespattered with the mud of slimerings and dry stubbles, and that thy more than thirty millions of subjects far away should be ill-treated and should suffer extortion in thy name. Ideal of Saija and Adinda from Max Hafela. Saija's father had a buffalo with which he ploughed his field. When this buffalo was taken away from him by the district chief at Parangkojang, he was very dejected and did not speak a word for many a day. For the time for ploughing was come, and he had to fear that if the rice field was not worked in time, the opportunity to sow would be lost, and lastly, that there would be no paddy to cut, none to keep in the storeroom of the house. He feared that his wife would have no rice, nor Saija himself, who was still a child, nor his little brothers and sisters. And the district chief, too, would accuse him to the assistant resident if he was behindhand in the payment of his land taxes, for this is punished by the law. Saija's father then took a poniard, which was an heirloom from his father. The poniard was not very handsome, but there were silver bands round the sheath, and at the end there was a silver plate. He sold this poniard to a Chinaman who dwelt in the capital, and came home with twenty-four guilders, for which money he bought another buffalo. Saija, who was then about seven years old, soon made friends with the new buffalo. It is not without meaning that I say, made friends, for it is indeed touching to see how the buffalo is attached to the little boy who watches over and feeds him. The large, strong animal bends its heavy head to the right, to the left, or downward, just as the pressure of the child's finger, which he knows and understands, directs. Such a friendship little Saija had soon been able to make with the newcomer. The buffalo turned willingly on reaching the end of the field, and did not lose an inch of ground when ploughing backwards the new furrow. Quite near were the rice-fields of the father of Adinda, the child that was to marry Saija, and when the little brothers of Adinda came to the limit of their fields, just at the same time that the father of Saija was there with his plough, then the children called out merrily to each other, and each praised the strength and the docility of his buffalo. 
Saija was nine and Adinda six when this buffalo was taken by the chief of the district of Parangkojang. Saija's father, who was very poor, thereupon sold to a Chinaman two silver curtain hooks, heirlooms from the parents of his wife, for eighteen guilders, and bought a new buffalo. When this buffalo had also been taken away and slaughtered, I told you, reader, that my story is monotonous, Saija's father fled out of the country, for he was much afraid of being punished for not paying his land taxes, and he had not another heirloom to sell that he might buy a new buffalo. However, he went on for some years after the loss of his last buffalo by working with hired animals for ploughing, but that is a very ungrateful labour, and moreover sad for a person who has had buffaloes of his own. Saija's mother died of grief, and then it was that his father, in a moment of dejection, fled from Bantam in order to endeavour to get labour in the Bautenzorch districts. But he was punished with stripes, because he had left Lebak without a passport, and was brought back by the police to Badur. But he was not long in prison, for he died soon afterwards. Saija was already fifteen years of age when his father set out for Bautenzorch, and he did not accompany him hither, because he had other plans in view. He had been told that there were at Batavia many gentlemen who drove in two-wheeled carriages, and that it would be easy for him to get a post as driver. He would gain much in that way, if he behaved well, perhaps be able to save in three years enough money to buy two buffaloes. This was a smiling prospect for him. He entered Adina's house and communicated to her his plans. Think of it. When I come back we shall be old enough to marry and shall possess two buffaloes. But if I find you married... Saija, you know very well that I shall marry nobody but you. My father promised me to your father. And you yourself? I shall marry you. You may be sure of that. When I come back, I will call from afar off. Who shall hear it if we are stamping rice in the village? That is true. But Adinda... Oh, yes, this is better. Wait for me under the oak wood, under the retapan. But, Saija, how can I know when I am to go to the retapan? Count the moons. I shall stay away three times twelve moons. See, Adinda, at every new moon cut a notch in your rice block. When you have cut three times twelve lines, I will be under the retapan the next day. Do you promise to be there? Yes, Saija, I will be there under the retapan, near the oak wood, when you come back. Saija returns with money and trinkets at the appointed time, but does not find Adinda under the retapan. But if she were ill, or dead? Like a wounded stag, Saija flew along the path leading from the retapan to the village where Adinda lived. But was it hurry, his eagerness, that prevented him from finding Adinda's house? He had already rushed to the end of the road, through the village, and like one mad he returned and beat his head because he must have passed her house without seeing it. 
but again he was at the entrance to the village and oh god was it a dream again he had not found the house of adinda again he flew back and suddenly stood still and the women of badur came out of their houses and saw with sorrow poor saija standing there for they knew him and understood that he was looking for the house of adinda and they knew that there was no house of adinda in the village of badur for when the district chief of parangkojang had taken away adinda's father's buffaloes i told you reader that my narrative was monotonous adinda's mother died of grief and her baby sister died because she had no mother and had no one to suckle her and adinda's father who feared to be punished for not paying his land taxes i know i know that my tale is monotonous had fled out of the country he had taken adinda and her brother with him he had gone to chilangrahan bordering on the sea there he had concealed himself in the woods and waited for some others that had been robbed of their buffaloes by the district chief of parangkojang and all of whom feared punishment for not paying their land taxes then they had at night taken possession of a fishing boat and steered northward to the lampoons saija following their route arrived in the lampoons where the inhabitants were in insurrection against the dutch rule he joined a troop of badur men not so much to fight as to seek adinda for he had a tender heart and was more disposed to sorrow than to bitterness one day that the insurgents had been beaten he wandered through a village that had just been taken by the dutch and was therefore in flames saija knew that the troop that had been destroyed there consisted for the most part of badur men he wandered like a ghost among the houses which were not yet burned down and found the corpse of adinda's father with a bayonet wound in the breast near him saija saw the three murdered brothers of adinda still only children and a little further lay the corpse of adinda naked and horribly mutilated then saija went to meet some soldiers who were driving at the point of the bayonet the surviving insurgents into the fire of the burning houses he embraced the broad bayonets pressed forward with all his might and still repulsed the soldiers with a last exertion until their weapons were buried to the sockets in his breast end of section twenty four